Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you today for the gift of worship. We thank you for the gift of using uh, videocast. We thank you for the gift of this discipline of us that turns us back on you and makes us remember that, uh, that there is death and that death inevitably follows life and after that the judgment and that our, our desires and loves should be pruned from this world to the world to come. We pray that today particularly that you will prune us and that we will not... Uh, strain against the traces of this discipline that you have us as a nation, really internationally under, but that we will remember that we are but dust and not strive against it and not be angry with our rulers in their wisdom and in their uh, mistakes. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning um, is Mother's Day, and uh, we had the sadness of uh, Sarah Helt. Joe and Sarah lost a little one a couple days ago. And in this church, we're very much focused on the grief of the loss of unborn life. Uh, This is something women have always known, but men have, uh, (laughs) I think until recently... Uh, men have not really been much aware of the grief of mothers who lose little ones in the womb. And I think partly what has awakened us to this is uh, our realization that the unborn are living human beings made in the image of God, living men, little boys, little girls who bear the image of God, no less than uh, somebody such as myself at 66 years of age. Anyhow, Today is Mother's Day, and despite the pain of speaking on the gift of motherhood for somebody like Sarah today, although her other children comfort her, uh, we need to, and it is appropriate for us as the people of God to set a day apart among the 52 Lord's Days each year, although my understanding is we have 53 this year. That's just weird. How on earth do you have 53 Sundays? How often? Every four or five years we have 53. (laughs) You learn something every day. So, it is fitting us for us to set aside every 52 or 53 uh, Sundays. a, a, a Lord's Day each year to honor and strengthen these, our mothers, against the attacks and the ingratitude that they face each day of their service to us. And so let us hear the word of God found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of of all the living. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so this is a very short text this morning, isn't it? And it begins not with a woman, but with a man. The word translated into English here as the man, now the man called his wife's name Eve, the word translated into English here as the man in Hebrew is the Hebrew word Adam or Adam. We uh, transliterate it into English as A-D-A-M. Now across the Old Testament, this word Adam is translated man or men over 500 times, about 525 times. This word Adam is the name that God gave the race. God did not call us persons or humans or human beings. He called us, he named us, Adam. 
This is the same name transliterated into English as the proper name of the first man, Adam. And we know that it's referring to Adam himself by the capitalization at the beginning of the word. This occurs 13 times in the Old Testament. And in several places, it really is hard to know whether it is best translated as the proper name of the first man or whether the name of the race. Here, for instance, uh, you can make an argument to translate it as capital A, Adam, or small a, the race. So the convention in English has been to treat this same word, Adam, sometimes as a generic name for the race and sometimes as the proper name for the first male member of the race. And as you know, just as our chapters and verse numbers influence our reading and understanding of Scripture, where one chapter ends and another chapter begins, for instance, they are not inspired by God because they were added centuries after God inspired the authors of the original text. And so, in the same way, translations themselves are not inspired. Some misguided souls think the King James Version is inspired, almost inspired, Some misguided souls think the process of transmission of a certain version of the text of Scripture is inspired or almost inspired. We have to be very careful, and we have to recognize that the original manuscripts are what is inspired. And so if there are errors, if there are conflicts between different versions of the manuscripts of Scripture, which there are, they're they're relatively insignificant, Um, that does not call into question the Holy Spirit's inspiration because that is attached to the original manuscripts written by the men under the inspiration of Scripture. And so it's very important that we not attach God's inspiration or inerrancy, as some people speak of the perfection of Scripture, we not attach that to the translations. Um, On Sanityville... uh, uh, There's a man there who is studying up at Bethlehem uh, to be a pastor uh, in uh, in the Twin Cities. And he was talking about learning Greek. And a particular, very well-known teacher of Greek grammar. And uh, you have to be extremely careful with the men who claim uh, credentials and PhDs in dealing with linguistics, with uh, language theory, uh, you know, their specialty is etymology, their specialty is hermeneutics, their specialty is exegesis, New Testament, Old Testament. A lot of times, these men and women are the worst politically correct members of the church. Some of the worst things that have been done by scholars to scripture and to the church today have been done by men and women with... uh, the terminal degree in New Testament and Old Testament. And this shouldn't surprise us. We live under the shadow of a major research institution. And uh, we know the intense pressure to, uh, to parrot, to mimic, to repeat all the stupidity of Western culture today. And nowhere is this clearer than when it comes to motherhood. And so when it comes to the translation of words that refer to the distinction between man and woman, that's been almost ground zero of where these academics have done such damage to the text of Scripture. Now, I make this point here because if we were to attach inspiration to the King James Version here, then we would all through the Old Testament translate the Hebrew word Adam as man. And that's what the King James Version did. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to translate it man. But really, it has, uh, it has, (laughs) I'm almost going to say, to those who think that the Bible translation should be changed to conform to culture instead of culture to be changed according to the Bible, uh, it, it would be wrong today to call it man because we have lost the usage of man being, a, being an inclusive, inclusive of both men and women. And so today, not like when the King James Version was originally translated, today, if we read 
uh, man in the Old Testament, we think it refers to solely uh, the male of the species. That was never the meaning of the word man in the King James time. Anytime the word man was used, unless it was clear from the context, it was inclusive of men and women. They were called man because God named the race Adam, and Adam was a male. And so all through Scripture, every time the word uh, man or in the New Testament, Adelphoi for brothers, these are what are termed male inclusives, all right? They have a male meaning component. There is a male aspect to the word when it's used for men and women together. Now, why on earth would that be true? Well, because in Adam we all died. Okay? And so every time male-marked words are used in Scripture for both men and women, it reinforces the fact that Adam, and therefore men today, have authority over women. Now, I know I've heard it my whole life, and I'm so tired of it. I know everybody's sitting there saying, oh, are you saying that every woman has to submit to every man? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, taken as groups, the male of the species has authority as a female. That doesn't mean that every man can order a woman to get him tea. You know, Mary Lee and I watched this uh, uh, British uh, detective show... (laughs) And it's really quite humorous because there, there, there's, there are two underlings, two subordinates. One is a male, one is a female. And it's always the female that goes and gets the tea, right? And so we're all falling all over ourselves never to ask a woman to ever demean herself by ever serving any man other than her husband, right? But of course, that's a joke. Because we're all falling all over ourselves trying to keep any wife from ever serving her husband. And in fact, not just outside the church, but in the church. In other words, we're working so hard to prove that we're not the stupid, ignorant, uh, benighted uh, people a couple miles south of town, as the Indianapolis Monthly put it in an article this week, uh, who actually still believe what 2,000 years of the church has always believed and taught, which is woman categorically, is subordinate to man categorically. All right? Doesn't mean that every woman has to get tea for every Brit. All right? And so when we come to these words in Scripture and we read this now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, what we have to realize is this first use of the word man is the Hebrew word Adam. It's also the name of the first male of the species. And so literally what this verse says is now Adam, now Adam, called his wife's name Eve. Now this is interesting. Because if you know, for instance, that when we refer to the man who is the first male of the species who is married and has a wife named Eve, all right, you know that when we read that in Scripture, it's what's called transliterated. In other words, you take the Hebrew, and as closely as you can, you come up with English letters that reproduce the, the structure and the sound of the Hebrew word. All right? And there are tons of transliterations in Scripture. Adam is one of them when it refers to Eve's husband. What I believe would be best today is that we take out all of the uh, words man that are generic in the, in the Old Testament, and we translate it small case A, D-A-M. So you would have capital A, Adam, would be the man married to Eve, and then small A, Adam, would be the race. And it would be very clear to everyone that the race was named by the male of the species. And that's what's true. God named the race Adam. But of course, we don't have the faith to do our translating this way. It wouldn't be difficult to do. All that would be required to distinguish between the first man, Adam, and the race of Adam is the capitalization of the initial letter of the word when it refers to the first man. Therefore, it would render it a proper name, and not capitalizing initial A when the word refers to the race. 
And it would have a lot of benefits, not the least of which is mirroring the inspired Hebrew of the text, which over 500 times across the Old Testament hammers home Adam's federal headship. Adam is our head. In Adam, we all died. In Adam, we all were corrupted. Or rather, in Adam was the corruption of all Adam, both men and women. All Adam died in Adam. Men and women together are in solidarity, not in the first woman of the race who sinned first, named Eve, but in the first male of the race named Adam. The church has to stop trying to hide man's leadership and authority over woman. We must not be embarrassed of this. It is given man by God when he made Adam first, then Eve. It is not a private Christian truth. It was established by God at the time of creation in the perfection of the Garden of Eden. And thus, it is universal across all men and across all time. It is such a constant truth revealed across Holy Scripture that even the animals entering Noah's Ark are designated individually as the male and his female. It is such a constant truth revealed across Holy Scripture that Romans 1, referring to lesbians, uses the possessive construction, their women. <laughs> I mean, come on, think about it. You know, how politically correct is that? You know, how many lesbians want to be referred to as men's women? I mean, guys, this is scripture. It is such a constant truth revealed across Holy Scripture. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 7 and 8 declares, For a man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Woman is never honored by refusing to confess or hiding, let alone directly denying the sex-specific authority God placed on man as woman's federal head. Nor is woman honored by hiding or replacing the male names God has given the race. In this verse, the male name Adam. Now, Adam, literally transliterated from Hebrew. Now, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Who called his wife's name Eve? Adam. From which we learn that the male of the species named the female of the species. From which we also learn that the first man, Adam, named the first woman, Eve. And the authority implied in this leadership of naming cannot be denied. We saw it earlier in the previous chapter of Genesis, Genesis 2, verse 23, where we read, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. But what are the Hebrew words translated this way? Well, let me redo the verse, inserting a couple Hebrew words. Just listen to them. You don't, you don't have to know Hebrew. I'm going to change it and give literally the Hebrew words. Just transliterate it, okay? So Genesis 2.23, transliterating several Hebrew words, goes like this. Adam, remember the translation was the man said, but actually the word is Adam. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Esha, because she was taken out of Esh. Now, we all know, even if we don't understand, even if we can't name it, label it according to grammar, we all know that if the man is Ish, naming her Isha indicates derivation. It points back to the man, okay? She shall be called Isha from Ish because she's taken from Ish. Ish is the man, Isha is the woman. Ish named Isha. And what did he name her? Ish named Isha Eve. Now the man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve. God named man and woman inclusively Adam because man is the head of woman. God's naming of the race Adam demonstrates his authority over the race. All right, man's. All right, God delegates that authority to man. Adam named woman Ish because she was taken out of Ish. 
Eshaw because she was taken out of Ish. Adam's naming woman Eshaw demonstrates his authority over woman. Adam named woman Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Adam's naming of the woman Eve demonstrates his authority over the woman. Now, what is the significance of this name Eve? Well, the Hebrew is kava. And what we could, uh, if you take the meaning of this word in Hebrew, it's life giver, okay? Now, really, is this naming of Eve demeaning to his wife? Is it demeaning to the first woman to be named by the first man? Is the one named demeaned by being named? Is it demeaning to Abram to have God name him Abraham? Is it demeaning to Sarah to be named Sarah after having originally the name Sarai? And to have God do it. Is it demeaning to her for God to give her the name Sarah? Was it demeaning to John the Baptist to have the angel of the Lord name him John? Of course not. And of course not. And of course not. It's preposterous to say so. The privilege and honor of naming in no way implies, let alone requires, any diminution or relegation of the one so named. Now, what about the name itself? Is this name Kavlois or Eve? Is that name demeaning? Or another way of asking it is, is it demeaning to be named life giver? I mean, is it demeaning? Well, you know, the question itself is ridiculous, right? (laughs) Right? It's ridiculous. How could it be demeaning? There are people here, by the way, and... They're here. Fortunately, they're all men. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a joke. My wife, my dear wife, the mother. Ah, Mary Lee is here. And then apparently Adam has had a, a change, having bought a Prius, and so he's maybe a man, but... That's Jimmy Hogue's joke here. It was a pretty good joke. You should ask Jimmy about it. Okay, let's come back. It's not demeaning to be named. It's not demeaning to have the name given you life giver, right? It's just ridiculous to say so, right? (laughs) But of course, it's not ridiculous. Come on, wake up. It is demeaning today to be a mother. Come on, wake up. Wake up. I have told you in the last couple of years that I finally understand why I hate feminism so much. And and truthfully, truthfully, what's dawned on me is I hate it because it demeans my wife and my mother and my mother-in-law. And my daughters and daughters, it, it, soon it will demean my granddaughters. And I can live with being relegated. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, 6'2", white, male, you know, a pastor. I mean, when have pastors, <laughs> I don't think I've ever, I mean, pastors are the most flaccid characters you'll ever run across in the film. Have you noticed that? I mean, so, you know, to be demeaned as a man beyond past, you know, it's like, yeah, 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 you know. Indianapolis Monthly and its, its writers are just, just so disgusting in how they handled our church this week. You know, this has been my life experience with anybody. I was talking to a, I, I mentioned recently, I was talking to a very important person in the civil government this last week, I think it was. And oh, he was just, and I just realized that I haven't seen him for quite a while. And he's forgotten that Christians who hold to orthodox Christian commitments aren't lunatics. 
you know, you have to have some contact with Christians to not think they're insane in the world today, okay? But the whole point of being a liberal is to avoid contact with Christians. I mean, that, that's what being a liberal is. It's, it's hating Christians, and it's avoiding ever having to drink coffee with them, let alone have a meal with them. That's why the east side is the east side, and the west side is the west side of Bloomington, right? You know, there are no Christians. Well, there's Eric Rasmussen, but then you see how they treated him. Um, now, what's my point in all this? Well, my point in all this is I asked you if it's demeaning to a woman to be called life giver, and everybody's, no, it's not demeaning. But then I'm coming back to you and I'm saying, it most certainly is demeaning. It is the foundation of feminism to despise motherhood. You remember that great paragon of, of racial equality and civil rights, Margaret Sanger. She sold the promotion of birth control, okay? She sold that by saying that if we could just keep all these people from doing you-know-what and having you-know-what, and the second you-know-what is babies, you know, if we could remove babies from the equation, in other words, if we could remove motherhood, then there would be world peace. And you read the biography, read the one that Yale published, it's unbelievable. And she just believed that there would be no more rape, no more theft, no more burglary, no more nothing bad if we could just get rid of motherhood or if all motherhood was wanted. Okay? And I hope you're with me when I say we see how that worked. <laughs> you know? And so then they thought, well, if we give them abortion, then we'll make sure that no child is unwanted. In other words, Planned Parenthood. In other words... No motherhood, or only motherhood of rich people who are intelligent and have their college degrees and preferably their graduate degrees and live on the east side of Bloomington. They're the people that should have children, but the people on the west side shouldn't have children. In other words, no motherhood. Just lifestyle options, right? Listen, we have to recognize motherhood is despised today across the western world. How have we gotten to a point where civilization despises motherhood? I'll tell you how. Good men have been silent. You are silent about it. You suffer through movies, through Facebook posts, through family reunions, through email discussions all the time where there's just this slight, slight, slight demeaning of your precious wife, your precious mother. And you just take it in stride because you feel so magnanimous, you know. You're being a campus crusade Christian, you know, where we just, we just love everybody and get along with everybody, and isn't that proof? You know, I was reading yesterday this article from the newspaper about an evangelical pastor in town who is really discouraged that evangelicals are, are known for saving souls but not known for creation care. And so he's going to preside over the disbursement of millions of dollars to evangelical churches for them to buy solar panels and install them. You know? And we're just so determined to have the same perverse values as our neighbors, right? And we do this with motherhood. We allow our women to be demeaned. We allow it so much that it is not uncommon for me to ask women across my lifetime what they do. And if they're a godly mother, they'll look at me and say, I don't work, I, I'm, I'm at home. I don't work. I mean, think about this. You know, who really doesn't work? A woman that doesn't work is a woman that makes tea down at the police station. And that's how low women feel today in the church who give themselves to motherhood is when people say, what do you do? They say, well, I, I don't work. And I used to say to them, so I guess that means you sit home and you watch soap operas and eat bonbons. You know, is that the work of a mother? Listen, we have to recognize there's a terrible attack on motherhood today. And we cannot, absolutely cannot protect our women and our daughters by having Mother's Day and giving them flowers. 
Men are made to fight. And we must oppose this godless, demeaning attitude, patronization of our women. Listen, when gays refer to married heterosexuals calling us what? Breeders. That's the name they use. Gays are intending thus to assault us and especially mothers. Anyone of even marginal intelligence knows today that breeding is a crime against nature. The breeding of Adam, the race that is, of Ish and Isha, of the race that alone is made in God's image and likeness. This is the main thrust of the climate change movement which used to be called global warming, and before that was called environmentalism. Man corrupts nature and thus should return to the cave from which he first emerged. The most insidious presentation of this hatred of the race of man and of motherhood comes through the voice of David Attenborough. The narrator for those uber-popular film series loved by Christians starting with the series, The Earth. I, I almost cannot abide watching anything the man does. Because that's the subtext of everything. He is cringe and cringe and cringe, but vice is a monster of such frightful mean as to be hated, needs but to be seen, and seen too oft, which Christians have seen, David Attenborough, too often. They first endure, and then pity, and then embrace. Those film series are changing your thinking about motherhood, okay? David Atbird is relentless in his attack upon man, and here's the motivation behind it all. He says this, he says, quote, we are a plague on the earth. It's coming home to roost over the next 50 years or so. It's not just climate change, it's sheer space, places to grow food for this enormous horde. I'm sorry, but it's absurd. The thought that the world that God made cannot handle obedience to God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember what? The entire population of the world can just be put in Texas and they can each have somewhere between a quarter and half an acre to have a wonderful garden. This is Texas. Sir David, who is a patron of the Population Matters organization, has spoken out before about, quote, the frightening explosion in human numbers and the need for investment in sex education and other voluntary means of limiting, of limiting population developing countries. Voluntary. We didn't used to be voluntary. We as a nation used to export anti-motherhood procedures to countries that we rich people thought were having too many poor children. Are you with me? David Attenborough says, Attenborough says, quote, we keep putting on programs about famine in Ethiopia. That's what's happening. Too many people there. <laughs> Too many people where? On the east side of Bloomington? No. In Ethiopia. He says, too many people there. They can't support themselves. And it's not an inhuman thing to say. It's the case. This is David Attenborough. Come on, people. This should anger us. This should anger us. Such patronization of the black race by the white man. Come on. Prince Charles and his son, Prince Harry, agree with Sir David. Six months ago on his trip to Botswana, Prince Harry lauded climate change as Greta Thunberg or Thunberg or whatever her name is. Three times repeating his conviction, which is always at the heart of climate changist ideology, he says, quote, everything is good in the world apart from us humans, unquote. Three times he said it, just in Botswana, over there with Megan. Everything is good in the world apart from us humans. Everything is good in the world apart from us humans. Everything is good in the world apart from us humans. Now then, why did Adam name his wife Eve or life giver? <laughs> Scripture answers our question. Now the man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother 
of all the living. Now, this English word Eve is derived from the Latin Eva, which in turn is derived from the Hebrew Kava, or Kava. So Hebrew inspired into Latin, into English, and they all mean living, and therefore the name Eve designates the woman is life giver. Calvin says, quote, as soon as he, Adam, had escaped present death, so it's, we're talking about after the fall and God's curse on Adam, being encouraged by a measure of consolation, he celebrated that divine benefit which beyond all expectation he had received in the name he gave his wife. In other words, he was on the sentence of death. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And all of a sudden, God doesn't contradict. We do all die, but God gives him some consolation. You know, the fruit of Eve will, will crush the head of the serpent. They don't die immediately. And so what does Adam do? He celebrates this, this shall we say, suspension of sentence, okay? <laughs> and he gives her the name life giver. And now we have arrived at this precious word, mother. The name father is precious. Is anybody going to seriously argue that the name mother is less precious? One day, (laughs) I didn't know if I should tell this story, but I think I'm going to. One day I was driving north on 37 before it became 69, and I got to the bypass, and they had already put in the exit ramp. And it was an incredibly... uh, slushy day, you know, just thick, thick glop on the roads, you know. And I was in my little Honda Civic, which already is very light, and I got caught in the glop. And all of a sudden, you know, you can see it in slow motion, you know you're going to crash, you know. And what do you think I said when I was going to crash? Did I say father? Did I say daddy? (laughs) No. I said, Mommy. (laughs) Listen, you go on to a battlefield and what do men say? Who are dying? They cry for their mothers. Did you notice in the uh, did you notice in the hymn we sang, can I have the, the words? Um, thank you I'm being served by a doctor and it's so demeaning to him okay okay Jesus lover of my soul do you remember what you sang the very beginning of the hymn goes like this Jesus lover of my soul Let me to thy what? Bosom fly. What is that? That's dignifying God, if I can speak thus, by referring to him as the bosom, the breasts, the nurse made that we fly to. No, we cannot seriously argue that there is less dignity and affection and love for mother than for father. As a matter of fact, uh, just the opposite. The name father is precious. The name mother is precious. What is behind this Hebrew word translated into English mother? Well, Jesenius is Hebrew and Chaldee lexicon or dictionary. So the Old Testament scriptures explains this. Reading from it, quote, This word, the word here translated mother, this word is undoubtedly, I'm sorry, not mother but Eve. Um, This word is undoubtedly primitive. And like ab, as in the Aramaic abba, or abba, uh, that Jesus says abba father, this word is undoubtedly primitive and like ab, Aramaic Abba, it imitates the first sounds of an infant beginning to prattle. Isn't that sweet? 
It's a transliteration of the first noises, the first words that infants say. And then he says, like Greek, mama, or mame, or mamaya, or maya. <laughs> a shout out to the ewers here. Or the German, mama, or the English, mama, or the Welsh, mom, or ma'am. Life giver, mama, more formally, mother. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mama of all the living. She who carried us, how precious this name is to us all, this word mama. She conceived us in love in her womb. She carried us in her womb for nine months as her creator knit her child together. Fearfully and wonderfully, forming her little one into his own image and likeness. She suffered the agony of labor to give us birth. She nursed us at her bosom, at her breast. She got up in the middle of the night to change and to cuddle and to kiss and to feed us and then put us back to bed and to sleep. She fed us our first solid food. She read us hundreds of books, which in itself is extraordinarily kind and patient. But what is even more kind and more patient is that she read a few books hundreds of times. This precious woman who disciplined us, who wiped our nose and washed our hands, who tied our shoes, who pushed our straw, and who put up with our father while doing all these other things. <laughs> Come on, laugh. Even our Lord had a precious mother, and he needn't have. He could have dispensed with this formality. He could have avoided being in the womb and being born and nursing and toddling and having to be changed before he was potty trained. But Jesus had a mother, and how did his mother Mary speak of her gift of pregnancy? We sang it earlier. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What is the great thing that the Mighty One has done? The Mighty One has made her the mother of his son. His mercy is from generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Did Jesus love his mother? One of the tenderest moments in the Gospels happened under the cross. We read in John 19, beginning with verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and who's that? We all know it's John. Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, to John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. <laughs> now then, one more biblical proof of the great honor of motherhood. This one from a surprising place arriving in a way perfectly designed to drive the wicked of our age into a frenzy of hatred. And we find it in 1 Timothy 2.15 where we read, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Calvin comments, and it's an extended comment, so be patient, please. Calvin comments on this verse. He says, Through childbearing to censorious men 
it might appear absurd for an apostle of Christ not only to exhort women to give attention to the birth of offspring, but to press this work as religious and holy to such an extent as to represent it in the light of the means of obtaining, procuring salvation. Nay, we even see with what reproaches the conjugal bed has been slandered by hypocrites who wished to be thought more holy than all other men. And of course, this is in the context of the Middle Ages, medieval period, uh, when Calvin was writing 500 years ago, when all the honor in the Roman Catholic Church was reserved for those who were called the religious. And the religious were not It was just like the time of Christ, when the only people who could be viewed as religious were people that had enough money and leisure to be able to observe all the rules. That was the way they viewed the priests. That's the way they viewed the monks in the monasteries and the nuns, okay? They were the religious because they had the leisure to do all the things that were defined. And certainly, marriage was not defined as holiness And certainly motherhood was not defined as holiness. And so Calvin is saying, nay, we even see, so he's writing 500 years ago in that context, nay, we even see with what reproaches the conjugal bed, the marriage bed, has been slandered by hypocrites who wish to be thought more holy than all the other men. But there is no difficulty in replying to these sneers of the ungodly. Isn't that such a priceless statement of the same situation we face today? We have the sneers of the ungodly against everything that Scripture says is connected with our salvation. And he says, first, here the apostle does not speak merely about having children, but about enduring all the distresses, which are many and very difficult, both in the birth and in the rearing of children. (laughs) Oh, my. You're having difficulty rearing your children? In other words, motherhood doesn't stop when you give birth. It gets even more difficult. Any of you have teenage daughters? Secondly, whatever hypocrites or wise men of the world may think of it, when a woman, considering to what she has been called, submits to the condition which God has assigned to her and does not refuse to endure the pains or rather the fearful anguish of childbirth or anxiety over her offspring or anything else that belongs to her duty, God values this obedience more highly than if in some other manner she made a great display of heroic virtues while she refused to obey the calling of God. To this must be added that no consolation, no comfort, could be more appropriate or more effective than to show that the very means of procuring salvation are found in the pain of childbearing itself. Even childbearing is obedience that is acceptable to God, but only so far as it proceeds from faith and love. You remember if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, this last week I put up some excerpts from Martin Luther saying the same thing about men. So let me read them, because they apply to motherhood. He says, Luther, now observe that when that clever harlot, our natural reason, in other words, he's talking about logic and, and, and reason and... Now, observe that when that clever heart, in other words, he's talking about how often our logic and our reason mislead us, prostitute the process of thought. Now, observe that when that clever harlot, our natural reason, takes a look at married life, she turns up her nose and says, Alas, must I rock the baby? Wash its diapers? Make its bed? Smell its stench? Stay up nights with it? Take care of it when it cries? Heal its rashes and sores? This is the prostitute, the harlot, reason, says Luther. And then Luther answers, and he says, what then does Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes. It looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties 
in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and is aware that they're all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O God, because I am certain that thou hast created me as a man and hast from my body begotten this child, I also know for sure that this meets with your perfect pleasure. (laughs) I confess to you, that I am not worthy to rock the little baby or wash its diapers, or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving thy creature and thy most precious will? Oh, how gladly will I do so, though the duty should be even more insignificant and despised. Neither frost, nor heat, nor drudgery, nor labor will distress or dissuade me, for I am certain that it is thus pleasing in thy sight. And then, a little later, he says this. God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling, not because the Father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. I want to end with a prayer for the churching of a new mother. You remember how Mary went up to Jerusalem and uh, went through the purification rites. You remember in Deuteronomy it talks about women having gotten safely through childbearing and the process of restoring them to, under the ceremonial law, which is abrogated, being restored to purity. Well, the church... uh, and specifically, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer from centuries ago had a right for restoring women to the church who had come safely through childbearing. And so it was a time of rejoicing that God had protected them. So many of them died. I mean, uh, dear Sarah was in desperate condition, taken to the hospital in an ambulance recently, this last week. And so... The joy that we have that God brings our women, our mothers, our wives through childbearing. And so they had a right for it. I think we should do it, you know, but who am I? I don't know who I am, but anyhow, this is the actual prayer in the Book of Common Prayer for when women are brought safely through childbearing by God and restored to the body of Christ, the church. The prayer is this, O Almighty God, we give thee humble thanks for that thou hast been graciously pleased to preserve through the great pain and peril of childbirth this woman, thy servant, who desires now to offer her praises and thanksgivings unto thee. Grant, we beseech thee, most merciful Father, that she, through thy help, may both faithfully live and walk according to thy will in this life present, and also may be partaker of everlasting glory in the life to come through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.